Today is January 22nd. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki, Naganago, Mekoche, Chesapom, Oki. Hi, my name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nipitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed US Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are Sitka, Gunai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22nd, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony, or sorry, the Wesley Chinookee and Bearspaw Nations of the Stony Nations, and the Dene from Tutina Nation. I acknowledge all First Nations, Metis, Inuit, status, and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. I honor the Blackfoot as the elders and members have been so kind to me on my Red Road journey and it's their land. Uh, Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my name. I was born here in Calgary or in Blackfoot McKinstis as Michelle Elliott, another English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Denny or Satu Denny, but my Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says the Alonized Denny. My father is so Canadian. I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having an Indian Act imposed status card. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare people, also called the Great Bear Lake people in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Pichotine Indahe in Satu Dene. It means many horse town, named after the Calgary Stampede. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the host as a guest and honoring your role as a treaty partner. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. Many, any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous. I just share what I know as I walk down my red road. Currently, because my issues, life, and content are triggering, if you're experiencing emotional distress after anything we talked about today, and want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It's toll-free and open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also text at hopeforwellness.ca. If it's more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, for immediate emotional assistance, call 1-844-413-6649. This is a national toll-free 24-hour, seven days a week crisis line that provides support for anyone who requires emotional assistance related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit. Non-Indigenous, there are distress lines in your area and in many a functioning 211 or for a 24-hour toll-free line, you can call 1-833-456-4566. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to our previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those that cannot afford to give, I would love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com. You can send in your comments or questions. I ha now have a YouTube channel where you can subscribe as well. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. So today I have a wonderful friend and guest with me. I'm lucky enough to call you my friend now. So okay. yeah, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Okay. Um, good morning. My name is Katrina Hewton. Um, my Blackfoot name is Nidana Mayaki. So my mom is from Siksika Nation. Uh, my dad is of Irish and Scottish descent. Um, I grew up here in Mokinstis um, and I am practicing as a provisional psychologist right now um, in the city. And so that's a little bit about what I wanted to, to come and speak about today. Oh, that's amazing. I can't wait to hear about it. There's so much to unpack there. What was mm -hmm. it like growing up in Calgary? Oh man. <laughs> um, it's where... a totally like let's unpack that. <laughs> yeah. Um you know I think that growing up um I think I struggled a lot to understand my identity growing up in an urban space. Um I grew up in a really privileged 
community. Um, and so, you know, even though I am white passing, I, I think it's always been very apparent that um, I wasn't like my peers and growing up the most frequently asked question was, what are you? <laughs> and so, so as a little girl hearing that over and over again, I think that really um, shaped a lot of my upbringing. Um, and of course, I always felt really tied to um, my Blackfoot, you know, ways of knowing. And um, my dad is actually from Windsor, Ontario. So uh, his family would yeah, so his family would come and and visit, but we didn't spend as much time with them as as we did with my mom's side of the family in Sixaga. Um, so I, I grew up spending a lot of time, you know, being dropped off in Sixaga for summer vacations and weekends, um, you know, playing in the hay and um, getting to know my family there. And so for me, it was always, um, you know, really confusing to have to kind of switch back and forth. Um, and I think I, I definitely experienced a lot of internalized depression um, growing up in spaces where I was often the only Indigenous person and where I think I had the option of not including that in my identity um, and experiencing a lot of racism from, you know, peers that, that knew my background. And yeah, so. I relate can, to that. Yeah, I am. Uh, you know, yesterday I was talking to a group in Lacombe at, at some, some youth, um, mm -hmm. and uh, I was explaining to them what it was like growing up in Sylvan Lake in the 90s when the Oka crisis happened. And I said mm -hmm. to them, you know, um, it, at that time, it was such a awful experience that I just felt so ashamed because of the way the media was portraying the, the whole situation. And it wasn't until um, I want to say maybe two years ago, as recent as two years ago, it was actually like Elaine from from the Mohawk Nation who taught us like nationally, oh, don't say Oka crisis, say the yeah. invasion of Ganawagi. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, that's a, yeah, okay, got it. And that was a, a you know, a shift in lens. So mm -hmm. I know exactly what you're talking about, having that internalized oppression, because I had mm -hmm. that, I felt so ashamed to be native in a in a society in an educational system that really teaches you to hate natives and when you mm -hmm. are native and you're growing up in that it's it's tough yeah yeah of course um you know and one of the things that you know i did want to share was you know an added layer to that was <clears throat> my last name so my mom's last name is backfat she's from the backfat family um and so when my mom had me and my sisters, I'm the youngest of five girls, um, she chose to keep Backfat and to hyphenate our names. So um, growing up, my name was Hewton hyphen Backfat. And so imagine how, you know, how kids would tease me or just make really ignorant comments, even adults. Um, so I experienced a lot of racism just by my name um, and a lot of shame there. Um, and I actually, you know, I recently changed my name. So I, I was married um, a number of years ago and, and I got a divorce. And so um, I had taken his name and and I thought really, really hard about going back to Hutton Backfat or kind of reclaiming a new identity. I thought about, you know, just going with Backfat. I thought about just going with Hutton. And um, I ended up changing my name just to Hutton because I talked to my mom a lot growing up and asked her, you know, why, why did you hyphenate our name? How come you didn't take dad's name? Um, even though they were together and, you know, had children in common law, um, they didn't get married until I was eight years old because my mom was so fearful of us losing status. Um, even after Bill C-31 was passed, um, mm. she still didn't trust the system. And so that was her way of really protecting us and, and our identity and our rights. Um, and then I actually met someone earlier this year, um, during a bison harvest and, you know, it was really an important moment for me because he was talking about all of the parts of the Buffalo and he was, um, doing some teaching around the back fat. And he said, you know, I had a friend and their last name was back fat. And he said, that is a very honorable last name, you know, and I had heard that growing up, but I, I didn't know the teachings behind it. 
Um, and so he talked about how the back fat is like the most revered part of the, the buffalo. And then that that's what's used in ceremony to, um, you know, make the paint and everything. And that um, it was the highest honor to be given that piece of the buffalo. Um, and so, yeah, that kind of, that shifted things for me. And I was like, hmm, interesting. You know, I am so grateful you shared so many levels of that amazing story because mm-hmm. you heard me in my intro talk about having an English colonial name, whether it was Elliot or Robinson. And I have told people over and over again that that last name um, is is a real hindrance because of racism in this society. And I think what you just said really like amplified that. But Mm -hmm. then, you know, the added part that the time that you your your family was named, you know, it Mm -hmm. was like, obviously, a very respected you know, family to have been given that name. And, um, but I can see the kids of Alberta, you know, mm-hmm. fat shaming, they, like they <laughs> yeah. fat shame anyway, let alone racist, um, yeah. you know, and then sexism, of course. So we have all of these like layers of, of hate that get thrown at us. And then, you know, um, and that's really hard not to internalize. I know it wasn't, I, when I was in my twenties, I had to unpack sexism. And then it wasn't until um, I had my daughter in my 30s that I had to start unpacking the racism. Like I knew things were racist, but it was really hard for me to articulate. And um, only now that I'm older, can I? And yet, like some of the youth are so good at explaining it. And Mm -hmm. um, the Black community, I mean, thank God for the Black community. They have, um, you know, articulated a lot of these like terminologies, like racial battle fatigue, microaggressions. And I just, Mm-hmm. I'm, I've been reading a lot of, uh, you know, black authors and black material and um, even white fragility by a white art author helped give me terminology that I, I was like, that's what I experienced. That's what we're yes. experiencing. This is what's happening to us. So yes. um, what is is that what kind of prompted you to go into the education field that you chose? Or do you want to tell us a bit about your educational journey? Sure. Um, I think that definitely was a big part of it. Um, you know, I'll admit growing up, I was, I was not the best student. (laughs) Um, I think people are always surprised by that. You know, I, I recently was thinking back about, you know, my time in high school, I I actually just took my two um, younger cousins into my kinship care. So they're teenagers, and I'm reflecting a lot on what it was like for me growing up and going to school. And I'm telling them, just go to school, please, like, get up, I will drive you, let's go. And then I reflect back on, you know, the fact that I was expelled from school multiple times. People are really surprised to hear that, Um, but I didn't want to go to school. And I, um, in high school, I, I stopped going, you know, a lot to do with my own mental health and things that I was struggling with, um, a lot of anxiety that I was experiencing. And, you know, I had um, a a principal, a vice principal that really believed in me. And I honestly feel like I I should look him up at some point. His name was Mr. Bromhead. And he was amazing because I think he really took the time to sit with me and understand what was going on on a deeper level. Mm -hmm. Um, And also to understand that, yeah, like these systems don't work for everyone. Um, I ended up graduating, you know, by doing online courses and distance learning. And, you know, he was always really encouraging me because he's like you can do the work you do amazing when you're here I just recognize that you don't want to be here and that's okay so let's figure out what works for you um and I actually when I graduated um I wanted to graduate with my class you know my peers that I grew up with um and when I went to school and I met my homeroom teacher in grade 12 uh, for the first time, he told me that he would not shake my hand when I walked across the stage (laughs) because he had never met me and I had never gone to his class. So I remember how discouraged I was. And um, the principal told me that he would shake my hand and that I would have a separate section and then I could still walk the stage. And, you know, it was so important for me to have someone who was encouraging and who understood. Um, And I think a lot of those teachers, you know, really just thought that I was a dropout or, you know, thought the worst but 
I went on to, um, you know, get my undergrad degree in uh, the Bachelor's of Arts in Psychology at Mount Royal. And I studied, I did a minor in Indigenous Studies. Um, that's where I really found, you know, um, like education that was meaningful for me and that that voiced my experience as an Indigenous person. Um, because before that, you know, the history that I was taught, you know, it never felt right. And I, I couldn't understand why, because I wasn't being given anything else to read, you know? So when I took Indigenous studies, it was just like, it was a huge part of my healing and, you know, self-identity work. And I remember like that intense feeling of, of reading the truth, you know, um, truthful stories that under, that explained um, why I felt the way that I did and why nothing really kind of clicked um, based on what I was taught before. And that was huge for me. And um, yeah, and then I went on to get my master's. Um, and right now I'm actually like continuing school. I, I guess I love it so much. I just can't get enough. <laughs> I'm doing a postgraduate um, certificate uh, called Bumagapi, uh, Blackfoot approaches to wellness uh, oh, through UFC. Thank God yeah. that you are doing this <laughs> Holy. Yeah. You know, we had a book club on Monday and we were talking about the National uh, Center for Truth and Reconciliation. And in the call mm -hmm. to action, like in the actual volume, they talked about how local universities should be, you know, collecting data, collecting stories and creating mm -hmm. those archives. And I, I just paused this all because these were all, you know, very um well-to-do white people that you know have a post-secondary um we one lady for you know decades she's been working on anti-racism in the city and we all kind of paused and thought you know what the ufc is trying to do i mean obviously positive in the right direction but here's like mm -hmm. here's such a huge gap where it's like yeah. you know every university across the country needs to be working on this and needs to be coordinated and all of this and it's like we're not even close to that and that's and i'm not blaming them specifically because i know there needs to be funding and there needs to be infrastructure and like a million things that go along to go with that but you know um to hear you doing some of that work at the ufc is so important um i remember meeting cora voyager dr cora voyager and she you know i i just remember walking away from our conversation thinking she is working so hard and there's not enough resources for yeah. indigenous students indigenous teachers and uh, this was like this had to be what 2013 ish maybe like long before the trc was even fully out there so mm -hmm. um you know just hearing you continuing with your education is so important and at yeah. such a critical time when we're talking about you know truth reconciliation indigenous inclusion and mm -hmm. um and I'm and I'm happy to hear um, edu post secondary education was part of your healing journey. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for yeah. sure. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the program, you know, the program at UFC, it it has been really great. Of course, it's during COVID, so it's a bit different. Um, but you also, I think, can can see and can really relate to people um, when you see the struggle that they have to go through to be able to do that work. Um, so all of our instructors, um, the elders that are part of the program, it's difficult to know that even at this point, they're facing such incredible barriers and that this program, you know, could potentially not be around for much longer. And it is that such an important program and it's so important for our ways of knowing to be um, accepted as valid, I guess, in, in the Western kind of educational system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I know our, our ways of knowing have been dismissed for so long. And mm -hmm. um, even for me, you know, unpacking that, uh, the the racism and, and the terminology. So like our myths are, you know, like the, the mm -hmm. they, they segregated into that concept where it's like folklore. It's like it's not an actual, you know, belief system that's valid. They, yeah. they constantly dismiss it with that sort of terminology. So um, and it was it's interesting because I was teaching these kids yesterday and I was saying you know at one point in time they considered my people extinct because two anthropologists mm -hmm. from Iowa came up and you know made this blanket statement 
and the Canadian government, of course, took it because these are academic experts. And as the Canadian government, we want to continue to steal this land and extinct all of the Indigenous people. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. you know, it, and, and that really took a long time for me to understand. It was like the folks from I Don't Know More that really explained the land theft to me that I was like, holy. And the irony was the abstract of it was that I understood the Palestinian um, Israeli issue. Like I, I seen mm -hmm. that colonialism right in front of me. And yet here it was, and I, I see so many parallels with what our struggles were, but it did take a bit for me to really comprehend, like, this is all about land theft. And I think that's why I feel so strongly on like, um, you know, the power of the land, land acknowledgements mm -hmm. and explaining that to people because, um, yeah. you know, they, they don't get it. And uh, they still think that, you know, nothing was here and all these new immigrants mm -hmm. came and made a beautiful uh, city called Calgary. And it's like, yeah. ooh. <laughs> Ooh. but the education <laughs> teaches that right that erasure of our people so yeah and that's yeah. pretty hard not to internalize <laughs> of course yes yeah yeah so well i i really appreciate you sharing that what was like um, the post-secondary education experience like for you um i think you know in in some ways you know i did a lot of healing work through my education and you know I was always told within my family like education is the new buffalo and you know we were always encouraged to attend post-secondary um I am the first in in my family like the first generation um out of residential school you know so my mom you know she she hustled hard and she she went to school and she um works uh in healthcare. um and she always encouraged us to go to school. And, you know, part of our teachings and encouragement from our grandparents was to learn how to walk in both worlds, you know? So um, it was really important for me to, to gain that knowledge in that way. But I think that it's also been really um, frustrating and really exhausting because um, as an indigenous person, as a Blackfoot woman who wants to practice in the right ways <laughs> um, when it comes to wellness and the field of psychology, you know, um, you're inevitably going to get back to that, that part where you recognize what's not working and it kind of just brings you full circle. Um, I realized through a lot of my work that, you know, I really had to go through a process of unlearning everything that I was taught. Um, and recognizing that a lot of the knowledge that I held was innate, you know, passed down to me. Um, things that I just knew that, like you talked of before, sometimes didn't have terms for. Um, and so, you know, now being able to learn Blackfoot ways, um, that's where like most of the healing is coming from and, and like my sense of identity. And I think what fuels the work that I do and that I wanna do in the community. Um, so, you know, I, I sit on um, the Psychological Association of Alberta's anti-racism task force. Um, and we had just kind of started off, but you know, it's really interesting to sit with um, you know, other racialized people who, you know, we all share that in commonality of this process of that like added step, you know, like that the work that we do um, means kind of holding both worlds. Um, and, and how challenging and exhausting that is and how that's not recognized. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Tim Fox from the, uh, from the Bloods, he always uses the term edge walking. Edge walking because you're, you are, you know, trying to, mm -hmm. you know, navigate two worlds together and it's how difficult and exhausting that is. And I actually had read it in White Fragility, the concept of racial battle fatigue. And I contacted the psychologist who were black mm -hmm. and they were like, yeah no totally use that terminology native americans should totally use it because they're they are based in the states so that was the type of terminology they were using for us but you know um i and i just find it so empowering to be in solidarity with other people of color um because mm -hmm. it just we do like this is a white supremacist world mm -hmm. that was imposed and that's there was a, a book that i read called the importance of monogamy um and it mm -hmm really unpacked and it's called nation building alberta and it basically really showed that how um you know they imposed their laws they imposed their language they imposed um the straight agenda through christianity 
-hmm. And that helped erase so much of all the things that we're trying to reclaim back. And it really helped me change my world perspective that, wait, so it really was bringing a straight agenda. And whereas you always hear the talking point, well, those, what's with the gay agenda, you know? So um, I really, really enjoy that. And I was going to say, you know, the education is the new Buffalo. Um, Casey Eagle speaker, he, uh, in my work with chaos, we're trying to promote the Canada learning bond with, uh, with folks that were born in 2004 and since that, um, you know, to open up an account, because if there is some money, they're more likely to go to university or to educate or some sort of uh, post-secondary education. I don't want to dismiss other forms, Um, you know, and, and so Anyway, he always uses the term education is the new buffalo. So I'm trying to find the mm-hmm. right picture of him so that mm-hmm. we can say, you know, make him a meme or a gif. And <laughs> 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 be like, education is the new buffalo, Casey Eagle speaker, you know, because yes. uh, it's so yes. important. But, um, but it is yes. hard. And I wanted to tell you, like, so my daughter is having struggles in school. We had a really hard time um, in mm-hmm. post-secondary or um, uh, public school. And as a result, um, she was struggling so much. She laid tobacco and prayed because she knows. And I'm like, no, that's not how prayer is supposed to work. You're not supposed to pray to not go to school. And then the (laughs) pandemic hit and they closed the schools. And I was like, holy, those are some strong prayers. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, if that's what it's going to take for me to learn that she like is really not feeling safe at school. Yeah. I have to respect that. And there's some yeah. amazing uh, two-spirit folk in our in our circles here, and mm-hmm. you know there were many of them who told me, like the really successful today, but their parents mm-hmm. when they recognized they were two-spirit pulled them from school, and that you know I know they avoided a lot of that trauma, and then uh, my husband and I we do uh, what's called well variety, and it's yeah. like uh, the twelve step through the medicine wheel. And yeah. uh, we don't do it for us. We do it for the community. And you hear the stories over and over, even the white community. And yeah. it's like so much trauma that happened when people were little, whether it's at home or whether it's at school. And it's like, if we can avoid yeah. less trauma, that's, then that's what we're going to do. So yeah, yeah. What, what's it like yeah. being, uh, what, what's the anti-racism committee like for you? You were saying um, it's a positive, if, um, but do you think that there's going to be some serious progress in mental health? Yeah, I mean, it's exciting to be a part of it and to be a part of these conversations. Um, you know, it, it kind of came from something that was a big struggle for me, something that I had experienced within my former workplace. Um, and so I had reached out to uh, the College of Alberta Psychologists and they directed me to this amazing woman uh, named Judy Malone, Dr. Judy Malone, and she's the CEO of PAA. And so she was an amazing support um, just in being able to relate to my story. She's a Métis woman and she is a psychologist, has worked in the field for, you know, um, I, I can't even say because she just jokes around a couple decades. <laughs> I don't know how long, um, but she is doing really incredible work. And so um, that alone was just, you know, such an amazing experience for me to be able to see visibility um, within the field because it is so hard to find an Indigenous psychologist, um, Indigenous therapist. Um, and even when you do, you know, they are kind of um, overloaded, you know, because there is such a high demand. Um, And so it was really, you know, important for me to be able to meet with her and to see the work that she's doing, Um, you know, and, and it's unfortunate because it's, it's been a long, long time that women have been doing this work and and laying the groundwork. you know, so on one hand, it's great, but it's like, wow, we're still just here. You know, it it's in- encouraging and also a little discouraging because I know that we have a long way to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I was literally having a debate with somebody today. So the Calgary police um, has issued a warning to Calgarians, Calgarian women specifically. Apparently there's been like 15 incidences of women being molested, um, just walking. Hmm. And uh, as usual, as opposed to the, hey, we're hot on the trail of catching this MO, um, what it actually is, is here's some safety tips for women. 
to avoid getting molested. And I'm no. like, it is 2021, and this is seriously coming out on, on mainstream media. Yeah. So, <sighs> so it was pretty, yeah. pretty upset. And especially after the inquiry, you know, like yeah. there's 231 calls to justice and we are focused still on victim blaming. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I was debating with women today. Oh, what is rape culture? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is the world my daughter's in. Like, and we've talked about like, yeah. where is a safe place in the world to get away from rape culture? And mm -hmm. I, I'm so sad to say, like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know where yeah. that is. So I know yeah. that like, as much as it feels like you have two steps forward with like Kamala Harris becoming vice president, you're still mm -hmm. debating what rape culture is with women. Exactly. What the? Exactly. What the? <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. So, yeah. and then add racism or ender, uh, mm -hmm. other, you know, gender diversity and, and you, you have yeah. so much intersectionality and we're still trying exactly. to be considered human. Um, exactly. One of my biggest, <laughs> um, you know, things I speak out against is uh, AHS not really having intersectional mental health, trauma-informed care, intergenerational yeah. trauma, yes, like, yes. What we're, you know, like what, what we're struggling with, uh, well-briety, I mean, yeah. that should be like absolute mainstream um, paid positions mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, through yeah. AHS. And, but then to me, there's the other side of me that's kind of really, okay, the system was never meant for us. They want mm -hmm. our genocide. And that's mm -hmm. why they don't have these services. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, yep. so and I don't want that. I want um, my child, your uh, the next generations to to thrive, right? So 100%. we can moving yep. forward and, and going forward. So yeah, yeah. Anyway, yep. Uh, yep. did you want to build on that at all? Oh, I could <laughs> <laughs> go off. <laughs> You're leading into the next chapter of my life. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know, when I when I graduated um, and I entered the field, um, I started working in sexual violence and um, I worked for a nonprofit organization that specializes in nonviolence, uh, sorry, nonviolence, uh, sexual violence, um, you know, and really claimed to have an anti-oppressive lens. And so when I entered the field, I was really excited and really um you know, feeling encouraged to, to do this work. And when I started to, you know, see clients, when I started to kind of notice the work that was being done, um, I felt a huge level of discouragement. Like I, I really questioned whether I belonged, you know, um, within this agency, within this field, I was like, I think there's something wrong with me because I see things completely different than all of these people. Um, and noticing, you know, in classes and, you know, consultation groups where my voice was really siloed, you know, where I didn't hear it echoed back to me in any way. And I think a huge part of that was that, um, like an intersectionality um, approach to, to wellness and to understanding things from an indigenous way of knowing where everything is interconnected. Um, and, you know, so even in these spaces that claim to understand and claim to, you know, um, be grounded in these theoretical frameworks, um, it really wasn't felt, you know, by me or, you know, I could sense by my clients. And so, that's kind of where my work um, started. And I think where my story and my, my struggle really started within the field. And, and that's a big part of what I wanted to share was, you know, what I had to experience and, and why it's not okay, you know, um, because, you know, a lot of that heavy lifting falls on um, minorities on indigenous women in the field who see this, you know, who can't unsee it and who also have lived experience, um, of these social disparities. So, um, you know, I think that we bring something different to the field, something that is really lacking and, um, you know, what happened to me in my experience was, a lot of systemic racism, a lot of, you know, the classic kind of experience that I've come to know that a lot of um, 
you know, women of color and indigenous women experience within the field of kind of, you know, going through the phases of being tokenized and, oh, great, like we value your voice, tell us more, tell us more. And, you know, the work starts. And then um, unfortunately, it usually comes to a point where, um, you know, things conflict and where I think there's a certain amount of power dynamics that come into play. Um, and people often feel really threatened by that. And, um, you know, that's kind of the, the white fragility that we talk about and that we see and the ways that these systems uphold white supremacy. Um, and so that's what I had experienced and was kind of pushed out of, out of my role um, for standing up and for speaking out about things that I, I knew to be true. Um, so, and I know that that is the experience of a lot of other Indigenous professionals working within an urban setting. Yeah, um, even in the domestic violence field. So, um, uh, so I volunteered at uh, the Distress Centre and I love their information. I love the training they gave all the volunteers. I really enjoyed that experience. Um, that mm -hmm. said, you know, if the bias is there, you know, if you're a woman mm -hmm. fleeing domestic violence, you're more likely to put them in um, a white women's shelter than Awutan Healing Lodge. And mm -hmm. that's problematic. I mean, <clears throat> it's definitely not available in you know, like Creed and in Blackfoot, where it is mm -hmm. in other languages. But like the point is, is that, you know, um, you bring up the services for domestic violence and the Awutan should always be the first thing out of your mouth if you're a native, yet it's not. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. you know, so they instituted a domestic violence, like 1-800 number for all of Alberta. And again, mm -hmm. a lot of the native like domestic violence shelters are excluded from that because they didn't pay their fee for the year. And it's like, so are you yeah. really in it for domestic violence or are you really in it for the fee to keep your organization going? And that's really what I always see. And it's mm -hmm. back to upholding white supremacy. And, uh, yeah. and have you seen that really great picture that goes around? And it's usually a, a Muslim woman in a hijab. And it says yeah. a woman of color in the workplace and like, you know, the honeymoon phase and it goes through until they're pushed out. Um, I've been saying a lot in the last couple of weeks, you know, these organizations claim they want to have Indigenous women, uh, women of color, but yet when we come to the tables, you don't make space for us. And that, you know, you're upholding the white supremacy. So you, you yeah. don't want us at these tables. So even exactly. I've been starting to back away from a lot of like opportunities and just telling them, I'm sorry, but your organization is unsafe. I'm sorry, yeah. but you know, what do you do for indigenous women? Um, you know, and, and you get to see these types of examples on full display, whether it's Jody Wilson-Raybo in the Liberal Party or, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of public conversations that happen where men are amplified but not women and uh, mm -hmm. i even had one fellow reach out to me recently because there's um there's municipal politics coming up and i'm a total nerd about politics right but we're trying to find progressive mm -hmm. like you know school trustees counselors mayors trying to find them yeah. because the ucp are putting out their conservative slates right like they they're mm -hmm. trying to find their conservatives to place in these positions of power so I'm trying to, you know, aid organizations that are trying to do the opposite. Anyway, one reached out and said, you know, I, we're starting to look a bit like a sausage par party. So we would like to um, ask you what you would, you know, if you would be a part of our organization, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is we were the second thought, you know, women being the second mm -hmm. thought. And then, yeah. oh, diverse women yeah. being a third thought. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not centered around us. So. Um, I did start a, a, a Facebook group and we're going to start doing bi-weekly bi Zoom chats for women or, well, not just women, um, BIMPOC in general. So if you're a person of color and you're in like mm -hmm. campaigns, <laughs> it doesn't matter what mm -hmm. party, they're all racist, all of them. So because they all uphold yeah. white supremacy, <laughs> they all have their ignorance, they all have their fragility. 100%. And then, yeah. you know, all of the racialized people who actually have a, you know, an, an issue to be political for, we get silenced, siloed. I was yeah. even told that one, on one of these calls, um, 
well, you know, sometimes you just have to take off your activist hat in order to be successful in politics. And I'm like, wow, what a, let's uphold the white supremacy uh, conversation, you know, like, holy. So I was really uh, disappointed in these so-called progressives, right? Because they think they're progressive, but they're not. And, um, you know, they don't make space for us at these tables. And I see it in nonprofits. I see it in Mm -hmm. education. (sighs) It's, it does feel overwhelming, but uh, at the same time, uh, like the kids ask me, what keeps you going? And I always say, I had it a billion times better than my mom who had it, Mm -hmm. you know, and I want it a billion times better for my daughter and the next generation. So, and and I hope that there's like, so much love and respect to the TRC commissioners. Mm -hmm. Um, That report that centered around survivors, you know, Mm -hmm. like that will be my, my Bible for the rest of my life. I know that, right. Um, Trying to uphold their vision. And Mm -hmm. um, so I hope that with that, thanks to those documents, thanks to their testimonies and such that, you know, we will have shifted the conversation even a little in Canada. I would like to go yeah. like to Germany where, you know, you can't talk about Hitler in a good way. You know, you mm-hmm. talk about the genocide, you remember the victims, you have, um, mm-hmm. you know, we should have a national center for TRC, you know, mm-hmm. and really have these discussions and buy back the land from farmers that they sold, um, yeah. you know, Indian residential schools to that still have the graves of our children under that are unmarked, you know, um, those are the conversations I want to be having in Canada. We have to mm-hmm. shift it dr- dramatically. Um, but, yeah. you know, I had a German friend who told me they do so much anti-oppression, anti-nationalist um, education and throughout their entire education system. And it's yeah. like, that's all we need here. It is. It is. 100%. So, yeah. yeah. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Um, I invite you to come back anytime. So, like, when this anti-racism committee if you have like you know a report that comes out with recommendations or something like that please please let me know and if you want to come back on my podcast anytime please let me know because I want to you know encourage that voice and the great work that you're doing that edge walking you're trying to do so that you are doing I shouldn't say trying you are doing it so yes yes. yeah thank you so much yeah no and well this is your land first and foremost I'm a guest on your land mm-hmm. and uh you know the work that you're doing in school like I want to celebrate that with you because I know it's hard these education yep. systems are not designed for us so for sure trying yeah. to restructure them is incredible work <laughs> it is yes yeah. yes yeah. of awesome. course any any other closing thoughts that you want to um I'm not I'm not sure if anything comes to mind right now. I think you definitely sparked a lot of thought for me, um, you know, in, in how important this work is, how exhausting it is, um, but also how much of the work has already been done, right? And so how hard, um, you know, this generation is working to have a seat at that table um, to also kind of just redirect back to what's already been said, right? What's already been laid out, you know, by those before us. Um, and yeah, I just, I think it would definitely be nice to connect again and to continue the conversation. I think it's sparked a lot for me as well. Good. That makes me happy. That's why I do what I do. <laughs> um, so on my podcast, I have this ridiculous long um, exit as well, but I really encourage you to uh, jump in on it because, you know, I just find the more voices, the better. And sometimes, mm-hmm. yeah, like I say the same thing over and over again but you adding to it might help other people see it in a different way. So I'm going to do my exit, but I encourage you and I invite you to, um, you know, come in and say what you need to say about what I'm talking about, because you actually have the credentials that people might listen to, right? Because where I like to think I'm so brilliant, it is actually hearing other voices sometimes gives it that extra boost. So um, I'll, I'll keep talking about some of the cultural safety that I encourage, but if you want to chime in at any point, please, I encourage you to. So, um, so I always say this, um, I'm proud that this podcast has given solutions and included cultural safety. <coughs> well, I'm just going to start over again because I coughed.
<laughs> All right, let's try this again. I'm proud this podcast has given solutions and included cultural safety training or cultural first aid in almost every podcast to create a safer space for indigenous people of color, those with disabilities, LGBTQ2 plus and other groups to speak. I want to say thank you to the authors Cheryl Ward, Chelsea Branch and Alicia Fritkin of heretohelp.bc.ca about what is indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it because those cultural tools have always helped guide the previous 100 uh, or maybe even more uh, podcasts that I've done up to now. Their work on those cultural action tools that I've said over 100 times um, support Indigenous work. And that's part of the your in, uh, reconciliation work and settler understanding is that you mm -hmm. have to create a safer space for us. You can't invite us to the table and then just demean us. I'm lucky just to highlight their work and repeat it here. So please look that up or listen to a previous podcast. Internalized racism or lateral violence. We actually talked a lot about that today, internalized mm -hmm. oppression because mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, what society and Canada teaches uh, indigenous women about ourselves, which is mm -hmm. actually false and a lie. So as a result, lateral violence um, comes out. And if you're looking for those types of uh, tools and resources, racialequitytools.org by Donna Bivens has some really great info about what is internalized racism. And if you don't even know what I'm talking about and you identify as Indigenous or Métis, you know, please look that up because it took me a long time to unpack that. We also have the American Friends Service Committee and they have do's and don'ts for bystander intervention. So if you see a Muslim woman being spoke down to on the sea train or an indigenous woman being told all sorts of racial slurs. These are do's and don'ts. It's like first aid for people. Indigenous have been talking about issues, sharing our traumas and reports, commissions and public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor our words. Honor the treaties. Listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize the marginalized with their budget of gender equity plus, if they're cutting services, uh, violence prevention programs, uh, indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, or if they advocate for the lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, uh, refugees, folks with disabilities, know that your vote to that party directly negatively impacts people demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports about child welfare reform, uh, the violence prevention, and now 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit. Denying these reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the justice, educational, and health institutions with multiple reports that say the same thing. Demand change from the election platforms and politicians. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, and sexism, they literally have zero business running. This should be understood by all parties or local politicians, community organizations, sports organizations, and clubs. A really great article I said out loud in episode 62 is Truth Before Truth, How Non-Indigenous Canadians Become Allies. If you're exposed, uh, experiencing emotional distress after hearing anything we talked about today and want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It's toll free, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also text at hopeforwellness.ca. If more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, for immediate emotional assistance, call 1-844-413-6649. It is a national toll-free 24-7 crisis call line providing support for anyone who requires emotional dis assistance related to missing and murdered Indigenous girls, women, and two-spirit. Non-Indigenous, there are distress lines in your area and usually a functioning 211 or you can also call toll-free 133-456-4566. 
Violence is my everyday reality, whether in small forms of microaggressions or actual violence, uh, physical assault, I mean. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started this podcast, to speak freely, without interruption, without tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions, as many people are committed to not hearing Indigenous opinions, but sure want to tell us theirs. And by people who know nothing about Indigenous people, I know nothing about colonialism, know nothing about the constant surveillance of Indigenous people, our protests, our vigils, and our rights by the very government they promote. Typical microaggressions, people dealing with internalized racism. Then there are folks who become gatekeepers that survive off the status quo. There are many people really in their trauma that deplete personal resources. Internal and external racism is an everyday re reality for Indigenous people. But I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to my ancestors, my granny, my mom of what strength looks like through your example. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt. My stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family, her roots. And she taught me to be a proud Calgarian. It is through her I'm a second generation proud Calgarian. I want to say thank you to Darcy for producing and editing this show. On top of being my husband, my childhood friend, the father of our child, and my support down my journey of the Red Road, he has witnessed decades of racism and sexism. And to our child, who we are blessed to learn from daily, we are honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. I hope my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss these present day issues in a way that they can understand. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian where you can pledge and support. Thank you to my previous donors for already showing your support. If you value listening or watching and you can afford to give, thank you. To those that cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments or questions. I now have a YouTube channel where you can go and subscribe. Uh, go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcast and pin posts on social media. And I want to end with some side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not tradish. And my beautiful <laughs> cousin would respond, or you'd be in my dish. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> yep, that's it. And that's my podcast. So thanks for being on my show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for all the work that you do in creating this space. Oh, I'm happy to. So, and the more that you uh, do, the more I want you on my show. Of course, yes. <laughs>